The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton. Coming up today on Building the Future. For the entire five years that I was here, there was no power outage, almost literally no power outage. And for the resident, for, for the residents as well. Yes. yes. And in addition to that, if one company with a couple turbines and a maximum of five to seven engineers, five to seven engineers could generate power for a city non-stop for five years and generate almost 10% of Nigeria's installed capacity. My guest today is Tayo Bamidiro. Tayo is a co-founder of Max.ng. The first time I heard of Max.ng was when they were in Texas in New York. I find what they're doing really fascinating, solving hyper-local logistics problem in Africa, especially in Lagos, where the traffic is really crazy. I believe anyone who solves this problem deserves to be a billionaire. Tayo, welcome to Building the Future. Uh, thank you, Dalton. It's great to be here. <laughs> That's a long-winded um, um, introduction, right? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I could quite an interesting one as well. I mean, I particularly enjoyed... Uh, the part of you saying whoever solves this problem should should be a billionaire. <laughs> the sound of that uh, is quite quite encouraging and exciting at the same time. Because we are solving a massive problem um, that everybody can identify with anywhere in the world. Uh, moving goods from point A to point B uh, hyper locally is very very tough uh, because most of those demand are driven by time and urgency, right? Yes, that's correct. And, and it's always very hard. Yeah. People to be able to solve. To, I mean, you can anybody can move from, from one thing to another, but meeting the expectation yeah. of people that didn't want that thing now is always, always what is hard to solve. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, it's it's a service business, right? And uh, the experience all the way from for user all the way from putting in the request to actually having a delivery a woman or man show up in front of your doorstep and deliver your parcel or package of food or whatever it is. And managing the entire process from start to finish is, is very delicate um, and involves a lot of different you know, resources from uh, the human resource, uh, the rider or career agent that you're working with, who in our case turns out to be an independent contractor. So that means you have a contractual relationship with them. It's not a top-down type authority you have. So you have to find a way to align incentives to make sure both of you are, you know, have, have the same understanding of what is expected. Uh, the other aspect uh, that we also have to take care of is technology to manage the, the process end-to-end. So figuring out how to use uh, Google APIs and GPS technology to pinpoint locations uh, in real time and also provide feedback to customers in real time as well. And you build all that technology? Yes, so we are, uh, yes, we, we are building our technology ourselves. Uh, everything we're doing is proprietary. Of course, we're leveraging on, on, on the massive infrastructure that the big companies like Google have already built and just building our own lay on top of it. So we are not, you know, reinventing the wheel per se. Uh, we're, we're just leveraging a, a couple of um, ubiquitous resources that are already out there mm-hmm. in addition to our own original idea, ideas. Uh, and building that into a very simple, accessible uh, solution that anybody can use to deliver a package within uh, a city. And of course, you're adapting that to the reality on ground in Africa. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Address system that is a bit hard to find, and yeah. Google can even get some of the addresses. Absolutely, yes. So one of the things we're doing is we're geotagging uh, addresses. So essentially, creating a one-to-one 
uh, mapping uh, between each address description and the GPS coordinate of that address. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's allowing us to solve the, the address resolution problem, uh, which is really great uh, because uh, right now, uh, or, or when we started, we were delivering things like parcels and like uh, e-commerce items, you know, but beyond that now we're beginning to expand into even additional things like delivering financial services to customers at the last mile mm-hmm. and also doing things like errands, you know, uh, and also, also connecting. Uh, something like errands like Postmates. Exactly, yes. We're doing so that someone well. can call a Max guy and say, can you get me my yeah. uh, charger uh, yeah. from whatever, uh, Absolutely. buy me a charger from the mall yes. and they would you they will go and buy it. Yeah, absolutely. We will, we will do that because uh, uh, we, we actually started out um, uh, in moving into this space with food, for example, uh, yeah. towards the sec- last quarter of last year, where we built some kind of marketplace for restaurants and chefs mm-hmm. uh, where customers can go download the app. Um, it's called Max Eats on mm-hmm. uh, Play Store and also on, um, uh, on iOS. And you can download it, create your profile, and place requests from any restaurant within a five-kilometer radius of you, and we'll pick up and deliver to your to your address. And of course, you have a relationship with this restaurant. Or so is it open like Postmates? So that's that's a good question. Uh, we have relationships with many of them, but there's also there's also options on there that we didn't necessarily establish formal relationships with. So in, th- in that case, if you order food from that restaurant, we would simply just place an order like a customer, and then we'll pick it up and deliver deliver to you. But all of that happens happens very quickly because we've created an internal system that allows us to move that order management process uh, through very quickly. Mm-hmm. But back to, to your question around uh, all the components that we've put together. So there's the human resource aspect, which is good getting into partnership with independent contractors and motivating them and ensuring we have you know, a high-level standard and we do our own adequate quality assurance to make sure they're top-class people and they deliver great service. There's a technology aspect as well that, that we're building. And then there's even the much more difficult aspects of um, managing the complexities of doing business in Africa, like uh, law enforcement, for example. You know, how to make sure that uh, yeah, your, uh, our riders and our independent contractors are not getting you know, harassed unnecessarily by law enforcement agents. Um, uh, we've had to do a lot in terms of you know, building a very clear process for authorization mm-hmm. and for licensing. Uh, and what what is what is this licenses? So if you're, if you're into transportation business generally in Nigeria, you definitely understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. You need uh, all kinds of licenses, both formal and informal licenses. Right. You need the licenses that the government gives. You need the licenses of the area boys. You know, they need the licenses of the local Sh- government. Just for you to be able to navigate mm. just the road and exactly. branded bike. So if, I, if I'm riding a bike with, with no brand on yeah. it, and mm-hmm. nobody knows it's a company delivery stuff. Yeah. Do you still require a license? Yes, that? you actually still do. If you carry a, a delivery box behind your motorcycle, you still require licensing um, and authorization. Uh, if you don't have those authorizations, uh, it can really be a, quite a nightmare moving around, especially in a city like Lagos. What we've just done is we've procured blanket licenses for all our guys across the state. So for each uh, Max rider, uh, we're looking at up to like anywhere between 10 and 12 documents that you need to be at, at rest that okay oh, I can't leave here anywhere Max does it on okay. their behalf so I mean it's, it's taking us a while to learn all those things but now we are no longer caught on our by any um, legal or community requirements in fact we have gone as far as doing CSR you know uh, I think about three weeks ago we donated um, chairs to a girls uh, junior secondary school in, um, in, in Ikoi there of course our CSR is not just driven by you know 
quid pro quo. By quid pro quo, no, no, no. It's definitely driven by impact. And um, we want to, particularly education, we're very passionate about education and also about, you know, women empowerment as well, and which is why we, we did what we did, uh, which is the first of a lot, a lot of other things we're going to be doing to, uh, in terms of economic and social interventions. And even our business, it, uh, the DNA of, of Max is social impact, you know, all the way. If you look at the writers that we, we work with, when we first started, the guys we employed, sorry, the guys we, we partnered with, the writers that came on our network, all of them were essentially from Chibok. And that was when, you know, the, the Chipbok Girls saga was even at its high point. And mm. these are some people that have been displaced, you know, by terrorism in the north, northeastern part of Nigeria. You know, I'm, I mean, we were excited that, okay, here we are making a little bit of impact and creating opportunities for, for a few people from who, are, who have been displaced by, by war or conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, you know, we created opportunities for people across the country. You know, the riders come in, many of them, before they worked for us, they were just freelance or independent motorcycle guys that were constantly being harassed by, you know, authorities and all of that. But when they joined us first, they were able to upgrade their motorcycles to the one that the government approves, Mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, very important to them. But also they now had the opportunity to earn money um, um, on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. So we took away a lot of the volatility that they would experience if they were working for themselves. Yeah. And we could guarantee them that, okay, if you're in a network, you're earning at least this amount of money every month. Okay. And even much more important, much more important are two other things. Because they cannot afford um, to earn income on a regular basis, uh, they could get housing. At least 50% of the guys that have come on a network initially, before they came on board, they did not have house. They were wow. just living in shacks, you know, on the water and all this stuff. You know, just and and, and j- just to pause on that, so mm. you took the risk of employing people that don't have fixed address. Yes, essentially. Crazy, right? right? First process we put in place to the risk of, from the customer's point of view, is that every package we deliver is insured. So if anything happens, we will get, we get it back for you, you know. The risk of hiring these riders is on us, not on the customer. Now, the thing is, um, we also know that a lot of these guys, even though they might be homeless, they are decent people, very decent people at that. Our interview process is very robust. There are lots of different types of questions that we ask them to figure out who they really are um, and what their background is. Uh, and what we found out is a lot of the people that come on our network are those who are just looking for opportunities to earn a decent income. Mm-hmm. What we've also found is many of them, because of the circumstances they have faced in life, would have easily gone into crime. But the right. fact that when they came to us, they hadn't yet gone into crime uh, uh, also says a little already about them. That mm-hmm. if you are you know, at the bottom of the pyramid and you're in a place like Lagos, the incentives are for you to actually look for any possible way to make money. And um, we, could, we've, we had a way of knowing that, okay, this guy is really looking to, or this lady is looking to make a decent living. But beyond that, we also do psychometric assessments. We have a couple of questions that we ask them. We look for patterns in their answers, and we know who's a good guy and who's not. But also, we make mistakes. I mean, we brought on a couple of people that weren't turned out not to be really good guys. Mm-hmm. And it's very simple. You fire them. You let them out of the system. And you make them as an example to the other you know, people who are in the system that, okay, we're a great company. We have a lot of focus on economic impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, we are building a highly disciplined and highly professional a network mm-hmm. of independent independent riders. Mm-hmm. If uh, you don't, if you're not inspired by that, then this is not the place for you. And we make that very clear as well. You you're building a company that's making money, but you're also um, um, 
weaving into it the social impact on the people that are joining. And you can see that um, there, there's a massive um, vision here about uh, if Marks become really, really, really successful, um, we're talking about thousands and thousands of riders. Absolutely. Who says maybe even millions? You see, yes, and then you're talking about people that are taking off yes. um, the bottom of the brand, giving the ability to be able to make money while solving problems exactly. for Absolutely. other people as well. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Is, um, hopefully self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles don't take over Africa's um, Urban oh, but by the way, we're going to talk about that because that's, that's, a, that's a likely threat to your business model or in the long term. Uh, it's not a threat to our, business, our own business model. It, it, it's, it's an existential threat to the workforce generally. Right. Uh, yeah, so, I mean... Um, but yeah, it's true because then you can actually adapt your model yes, to, to work with uh, autonomous vehicles. To work well. with autonomous vehicles and drones or whatever it exactly. is, technology that you can use to solve yeah. point A to point B. But it undermines these social impact um, objectives. So that's, that's a great, uh, a great uh, question. I mean, question or comment, uh, however you'd like to frame it. So, but the reality is, you know, with every new opportunity, uh, uh, it's, I think they call it creative destruction. With every new innovation that promises, you know, one, two, sorry, two, three, five, maybe ten x improvements uh, in efficiency, uh, there's things that you know are cannibalized, but there's also new opportunities that are created. Mm-hmm. You know, so for us, the challenge is continuously making sure that, however the business evolves, we continue to make a lot of impact okay. by creating opportunities. Mm-hmm. Now, when I, when you look at a company like ours. The opportunities that we are creating is even beyond just for independent riders in our network. We are creating a system that will connect businesses and consumers very efficiently. And we are solving that last mile delivery problem and hopefully even build some kind of payment solution on top of it if nobody else in the market is able to do that before we have, uh, you know, when we need it. Right. Um, so if you look at the, the network effect, you know, of Enabling business, you know, B two C or B two B transactions, mm-hmm. um, we will be creating a lot of jobs, mm-hmm. and which is why I'm very excited about what's going on, you know, in the digital space across Africa. We are having uh, amazing innovation in, you know, all, all the all the important spaces in payments, mm-hmm. in logistics, uh, in in commerce, uh, in retail, uh, in fashion. I mean, you have all these, you know, these innovations come together, you know, to form one powerful, compelling uh, infrastructure for business, then uh, the opportunities are limitless, you know. That this is essentially what will move Africa from third world to first world. It is these innovative companies that are solving deep-seated ancient problems that have, you know, stopped uh, the continent from developing. Yeah, and technology is giving us the access to be able to solve those problems now in a cheaper and scalable Yes. Way. Absolutely. Um, let, let's go to the beginning. You used to work for LNG. Yes. Was that after you finished your university? So that, that was my third job. I oh, think. third job. Yes. Wow. So when you finished uni, yeah. um, you studied in Nigeria. Yes. Originally, University of Computer Science, University of Ibadan. Yes. And what did you do? Computer science. I did computer science there. Yes. So, and w- w- why computer science? Oh, uh, I wanted to be like I wanted to be as rich as Bill Gates and uh, that Steve was the motivation Jobs then. Right? Listen, yeah. <laughs> I just looked at these guys. You know, I read them up in magazines. Then my eldest brother also studied computer science. Mm-hmm. You know, and I saw after I graduated, also in the University of Ibadan, okay. uh, the Premier University. Um, 
So when he, he got out of school, you know, he was getting job offers left, right, and center. Interesting. From all kinds of technology companies here in Lagos. Uh, you know, and I was like, okay, this is what it's like. Um, this looks like a pretty good option. So and you are numerate? Yes. Okay. Oh, my, my dad, I mean, my, my dad is a professor of statistics and biometrics. Okay. So he's, um, all, all my siblings were all, you know, good with numbers. So your dad was a professor at University of Ibadan. Yes, University of Ibadan. That's correct. Yes. So you said all your siblings were good with numbers. Was that because of the way? It, I want to. I want to explore something here. Is it? Okay. Is it? Um, some, is it because of the environment? Is it nature or nurture? I, I would think it probably is a combination of both. So I mean, it's not like my dad ever like organized um, mathematics lessons for us. At home. He never. I don't think he ever did that. I never sat down with you and be solving math, math, math problems. If I thought about it, maybe. Twice or three times did I have to, like, you know, go to him to help me. It was also sort of like because we, we all you know, knew math pretty well, so we never really needed any help. No, no, but from, from, from when you were like in the from very years, young, from yeah. six, from four or five, yes. was there, do you, can you recollect when you were just solving math problem with your dad or your dad showed I, re- you I honestly can't. So I would say maybe, maybe actually is even more, not, more nature than nurture. It's almost as if it always had been in our DNA. To just be good with you know numbers and uh, or that you you observe him just solving problems using maths and yeah. he's always the numbers guy and, yes and abso- absolutely and anybody wants to be like their dad and that's yeah. and you're always thinking yeah what would that do when this problem comes you know, what, how would it, is that was that something like that so I, I I guess it's probably something that that would be part of it uh, the other thing I would say is mathematical stuff was always lying around the house. Now, when I was growing up, of course, we didn't have the huge distraction of social media and all the excitement that is around today. Mm-hmm. I guess in a lot of that free time, too, I would just pick up, you know, all his resources. I mean, all, you know, his books are all, all over the place. We had a, a library in the house as well that was just filled up with books and resources and also a lot of his, history books as well. And I and my siblings used to play a couple of games then. We would study some of those books and be engaging each other on, like, current affairs and history. You know, how many... Uh, they used to be fascinated with um, the military arsenal of nations. I said, okay, wow. how many ballistic missiles you know, does Nigeria have? How many F-16s does awesome. you know, do you wow. have? Did uh, Venezuela have? You know? My dad was um, so passionate about his work. Wow. He was, I mean, till now, uh, he's in his uh, uh, late, he's moving into his late 70s and he's still very sharp and he still lectures, you know, he still talk, teaches students. Um, you know, so there's that level of, of commitment and dedication to to teaching, to numbers, mm-hmm. to, you know, getting insights from data. You know, so, I mean, now everyone, everyone is talking about analytics and data-driven decisions. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that I've been exposed to since, like, the last, you know, 30, 30-something wow. years. So you, you grew up in that kind of... So that enables you to be able to, to think about going to do computer science and yes. what you, you tried in it. You enjoyed your, your studies? Oh, I totally did. I totally did. Um I mean, back in school days then, uh, already, remember I said I'd already seen my, my brother, elder brother, you know, do computer science and have lots of opportunities come his way. So for me, it was a natural thing as well. Uh, the interesting thing was, in addition to my passion for numbers and technology, um, I also had a passion for social and economic change. So I was also politically aware. Mm-hmm. That side of me is from my mom, uh, who... Uh, who is a journalist, uh, retired as a journalist, uh, became a real estate investor. But still, uh, during her days in journalism, she was also a union leader. Wow. So she would, like, you know, fight for workers' rights, you yeah. know, travel around the country, drive herself. Yeah. There was a time, I think, she drove all the way from Ibadan to Sokoto State. 
She was part of NGJ, the yeah. National Union of Journalists. So, so it was Ratau, Radio and Television Theatre Workers Union of Nigeria. And were they very strong? They were very strong. Yeah, and do it was during the military. Many of that. It's always a strong times. activism. Yes. It's a hotbed for activism it is, when you it have is. dictators. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it is. So uh, a lot of that also came true to me when I was in school as well. I ran for offices. I was wow. president of the Computer, Computer Science Students Association across Nigeria. Um, but I was also involved in a lot of, you know, awareness things, social impact things, you know, social change, social transformation. And initially, I did feel like I would have a lot of interest in politics. But eventually, I decided to go the entrepreneurship route, it, more out of pragmatism, okay. uh, because I felt that I could control the variables a lot more if I'm trying to build a business. Okay. Looking at examples of people like Dan Gotti and mm-hmm. the rest of them, mm-hmm. uh, because when I looked at the political climate, I saw, you know. Uh, what highly principled people had invested lots of you know their life and their time and their resources in pushing for social change, and I wasn't very excited by how some of them ended up. What I mean is, uh, you know, they fought for decades upon decades, and mm-hmm. at, the, at the end, you know, it was almost, almost as if it was in vain, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm saying, you know, uh, uh, I mean, look at. Um, you know, someone like the amazing Ghani Fawemi, what he did for decades and decades fighting for rights. Mm-hmm. You know, and then eventually, you know, after all said and done, and when he passed away, you know, I, and I looked at it and said, you know, this man has done so much. Mm-hmm. And the impact that he has made in people's lives is indelible. But in terms of the change in the society, you know, how much, you know, uh, uh, has really been achieved. Mm-hmm. And the simple reason is, you know, for every one Ghani uh, uh, you have like 300 crazy politicians that are ready to destroy the country. You know, so I said, okay, I don't want to go up against this kind of odds. Yes. At least not right now. Yes. Uh, but if I go into entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. yes, there's still a lot of impact that governance has on you, mm-hmm. but you are not limited in that sense. Uh, you're not as limited. Uh, and case in point is if you look at Nigeria, you can see highly successful entrepreneurs who succeeded against all odds. Yeah. And things that the government could not do, these guys did. For example, in terms of building massive, massive businesses that went across the continent and created a lot of employment opportunities. Yes. You can see the trend, for example, with private universities as well. You yes. know, at the point when public universities were on a massive decline. Yes. Then individuals, you know, churches as well began to, you know, uh, pioneer private universities. And if, if, yeah, middle class in Nigeria today, and for some reason you don't you don't send your kids to go study uh, abroad. They are definitely going to a private university today in Nigeria. You know, so uh, uh, looking at all that stuff, I just figured out that okay, um, let me go to where I can have a little more control over the variables. And the, other, the exciting thing about building businesses, especially a technology business, is that you you are um, you break through borders. Yeah, you know. We're building Max into a Pan-African business. Yeah. It's not just limited to Nigeria. It's going to be in Ghana. It's going to be in Kenya. It's going to be all around the whole place. Yeah. If you look at uh, Facebook today, Facebook is bigger than most countries in the world. So the kind of influence that someone like Mark Zuckerberg exerts or Google or Microsoft exerts, uh, so, I mean, Apple has the market, Apple's market capitalization now is bigger than Nigeria's GDP. You know, so 
what are we talking about here? Uh, there's many ways to build nations now, you know, not just a geographic territory, but you can build nations, you know, virtually. Because borders has now been exactly. a and then people interact. A lot of people identify with, uh, as their tribe, um, people away from their locality, from people where they are born. And yes. I think there's a new tribe forming uh, online where Digital, uh, yes. you, you will identify uh, with someone in Venezuela as part of your tribe. Exactly. Easier than somebody with who might be living around you. And also, because, I mean, technology has just changed a lot of things. The way people work. Yes. Um, so you can, your colleague, your, your, line, your direct line manager yeah. could be in New York. Exactly. Your, your team are based in, in, in Manila. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, so it just changes that. Exactly. Totally. The only thing that is not going to change is the family structure. Yes. Everybody has to be together. Yes. Hopefully. So maybe somebody, somebody in events like a virtual husband or wife in the future. We never know what, what, what you know, where all this is going to take us eventually. So, so, so you, you, you started with that, with the, with the uh, goal of social change yes. based on the influence that you had from your mom. Yes. Uh, and and you are you are also numeric because of the influence you had from your dad. Yes. And so you studied computer science and then you said okay I don't want I, I enjoy the social activism uh, I want to make change I want to I want to impact our lives but the best way for me to do this is through uh, Business entrepreneurship yes. gives me the more opportunity to do this uh, because I can control a lot of the variables. Absolutely. So that was the decision that you, you took, and you said, yes. "I'm going to go into this." Yes. At that way. And so, what did you do next after your computer science? That's, that's a great question. Um, so I began to, to, to study examples, and a lot of the examples I studied were international examples, like uh, Mr. Gates, uh, all the way back even to people like John T. Rockefeller, who built, made a lot of um, impact economically and then switched over and made a lot of impact socially. Mm-hmm. Someone like Rocky Feller spent half his life making his money mm-hmm. and spent the rest, the remaining part of his life giving it to me uh, uh, you know, through the Rocky Feller Foundation. And uh, so what I tried to do was to look at the journeys that these people went through. And I saw that um, you know, someone like Gates, for example, went to the Ivy League, you know, Harvard. Mm-hmm. Eventually he dropped out. Key point, he dropped out because he was too good for the system. Not that he dropped out because he couldn't, his grades were poor and he couldn't... Uh, figure out the Harvard environment. No, he dropped that because it was way ahead of the system. I, th- I, also, I, th- I thought it was important to clarify that mm-hmm. for people who are considering dropping out yeah. uh, because they can't meet up with the system. That's a very different mm-hmm. reality. Um, and I discovered that, okay, in order to be the best, uh, you have to study from the best. So you have to learn from the best. Uh, even looking at people like uh, Andrew Carnegie, uh, the steel magnate in the U.S., uh, he was mentored from a very young age by somebody called Tom Scott. Mm. Uh, and he learned so much from him. And I realized that, okay, at that point in time in my life, I didn't have access to massive, massive mentors in terms of people who built massive businesses or had massive impact. Or I didn't have a, like, a Nobel Prize laureate that could you know, coach me on how to be truly exceptional. So, but I knew that, okay, I wanted to get to the highest. So I had a dream and said, okay, you know what, I'm going to go to Harvard or MIT at some point. I'm going to go and meet the best of the very best and learn from them mm-hmm. and then come back and replicate something in Africa. So that dream was instantly born inside of me. Mm-hmm. But I realized that, okay, in order to get there, I would have to have some pretty impressive accomplishments, yeah. either professionally or academically. So, of course, I studied very hard in school, uh, got a decent grade out of school, uh, and then I worked quick succession. I first ran my own software company, then I worked for the UEC group, then I worked as a consultant for Presidents House Coopers. So, you run your software company, which is a consulting company, yes. building software for people. Exactly, yes. And then I worked for the UEC group, uh, which runs the diversified set of businesses, getting inside in manufacturing, in customer service, in uh, 
auto as well. Um, and then uh, and logistics, because uh, US also has a big logistics company called MDS Logistics. It was just a broad-based experience. And then I moved into consulting with PricewaterhouseCoopers for a short period, and then I moved to Nigeria for natural gas, where I had an amazing five years working with like extremely intelligent people, working on like really high critical systems. So that's where I really developed. What were you doing at So I worked in technology, but technology embedded in engineering and operations. So I did product management. I also did project management there as well. And you were based uh, in Lagos or Bonnie? So I was based in the plant in Bonnie Island, which is Bonny like Island. a mini city. Yeah, yeah, I've been to Bonnie Island. It's, oh, it's interesting. Amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. I have a friend who is, who work, he still works at NLNG as okay. a technician. One of the earliest. Technology. Oh, that's interesting. And it's been there since 1997. Wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah, since 1997. Yeah, it's been it's been with an LNG, and uh, I, I visited him. I think 2001. I stayed in the on the island. Oh, interesting. It's an amazing, different experience. Oh, uh, totally. To- totally, totally different experience. I mean, <laughs> it's a self-sufficient um, system that the company has built there. Yes. In terms of the living area, and also in terms of the the, the social trains. Social life as well. Uh, it's a little limited because it's an island. It's really an island. You know, yes. It's bothered completely by water. Yes. So the only way to come in is by boat or by air. Yes. Which was very interesting and fascinating. But anyway... Um, so you, you worked in the, on the island So I worked on the island for years. five years, um, working on engineering systems, working on optimization systems, uh, launching really important products for the company that brought in the hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for the company, but also understanding complexity. Uh, you know, working in a plant like that is high risk. Uh, uh, you have to pay. You have to have massive attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Um, the company operates 24, 24 hours a day, seven days a seven days a week, three sixty five days a year, three sixty six in Libya. The plant never shuts down. Wow! Except you're doing maintenance, and it's only one that shuts down at, at once. And shutdown is a major activity that everyone pays attention to, just to make sure that you know the trains are not damaged in the process of maintenance. Because each, each day you are shipping out, you know, one uh, 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 vessel of LNG, which is valued at anywhere between 20 and $25 million at that point in time. So every single cargo, one or two cargoes are leaving every day, that's $50 million in revenue. If anything goes down, if any delay happens, you are losing tens of millions of dollars in revenue wow. on a daily basis. So you understand the kind of culture that you build when you're in that kind of environment uh, where, you know, everybody, you all have laptops, you all have VPN connections, wherever you are in the world, you need to be able to log on to, you know, our technology and engineering systems to check out what's going on. So I built that kind of culture there um, uh, and it was extremely helpful for me to understand that in order to build high-performance systems, you need to cover all your bases. Yeah. You need to cover all your bases. Well, I mean, we're doing things like, you know, uh, failover tests on a regular basis, like top-class engineering practices to make sure that downtime was reduced to the barest possible and minimum. And how has that affect, how has that impacted, I'm trying to move a bit faster now, okay. how, but how has that impacted your running max, which is a logistics, there is a micro, yeah. micro problem, I mean, yes. and in terms of scale, it's micro compared to energy, yes. yeah. but how has this learning impacted what you're doing? That's a really great question. Let me quickly make one final point. The last thing that I saw there that was fascinating was the company was generating you know, a power for itself, but also for the entire city. For the entire Bonnie Island city, yes. And, fin- and Finima. Yeah, and Finima, yes. Bonnie and Finima. Uh, the total installed capacity, the company was generating close to about 200 megawatts. At some point, that was 10% of Nigeria's entire power generation capacity. What? So I asked myself, I said, wait, hold on a second. 
For the entire five years that I was here, there was no power outage, almost literally no power outage. And for the resident, for, and for the residents as well. As yes. Well. And in addition to that, if one company with a couple turbines and a maximum of five to seven engineers, five to seven engineers could generate power for a city non-stop for five years and generate almost 10% of Nigeria's installed capacity. So they only have five to seven engineers to that do manage that? the entire process, GE engineers, that manage the uh, the power generation aspect. What? That do the manage maintenance and all that stuff. So for me it was like if one company can generate power like this, why the heck is Nigeria not able to generate power? A whole nation of one eighty million people where did can they generate get it? Where power was the source of it's uh, gas. Which is abundant in Nigeria, you know. But anyway, so the key thing that I picked up was well, number one was that right here in Nigeria, you can actually build something that is world class. Mm. That was the first thing that was, and that was very important for me to understand, to, to, to realize, and to embrace. Which is why we are building Max as well. That okay, there's a lot of you know inefficiencies in the system, there's a lot of difficulty, but I've seen it done in another mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. I've seen people with the right expertise and the motivation mm-hmm. build world-class facilities. So you're not impaired right by those thinking that can stop people that say, oh, this, it can work as well, but not in Nigeria. Yeah, that's not. somebody coming from outside the continent might say, that, let's do this, and, and other people say, no, it can, it, yeah. don't bring that evil mentality here. Yes. But you can say that, I mean, and that person will not be able to have the credibility yes. to be able to counter that argument. <laughs> yes. Uh, because you're... No matter what you say, you are still bringing your evil mentality. Yes. But you can say, uh, no, uh, we can do this because I've seen it done in the Yes, year. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's like, uh, uh, yes, so that essentially is it. And then that discipline and understanding that, okay, in order to build world class infrastructure, you need to pay massive attention to detail. Uh, it's like, you know, the Boy Scouts, be prepared. You know, always be prepared. That mindset is the same thing that I took when I left uh, NLNG to go to MIT. Now, going to MIT, uh, the objective was to learn something slightly different, was to learn the innovation process. Mm. You know, so oil and gas is great. You learn a lot of discipline, high efficiency operations and commitment. But there's not a lot of innovation going on in there. Yeah. It's an industry from the past. Going to MIT was the other side, understanding the innovation process. How to disrupt the whole model and create a new one from nothing. Exactly, essentially. Which, when you get to MIT, you will see much more than you can handle. Wow. What program did you do at MIT? So I did the MBA program at Sloan. Is it Sloan, the one-year program? I did the two-year one. The one-year one is is for mid-career people. Okay. Uh, At that point in time, I still was a little, sort of like, earlier stage of my career. So I, I also wanted two years because two years gives me enough time to suck in a lot mm-hmm. from the Cambridge and the MIT ecosystem mm-hmm. uh, there in Massachusetts. So two years, amazing two years. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe another, in another talk I could talk about my experience there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, being in, in a class with people who are formerly nuclear engineers or nuclear scientists or people who've built... One of my classmates you know, was part of the team that built the Boeing 787. Wow. Um, when you are in a, in a community like that... Um, it puts a lot of pressure on you, you know, and you also learn a lot, which is, you know, what I essentially did. I sucked in as much as I could around how to ideate, how to build teams, how to motivate people, um, uh, and the innovation process. So you were move, you're in the kind of almost like mid your career, or maybe you can say at least five years working yeah. in a very comfortable job, 
very, very good, high-paying, one of the best-paying jobs in Nigeria. Yeah, yeah. And you decided to go to MIT. Were you married then? I wasn't, but I, I, um, I, I, I left in July. I got married in August. So immediately I left, I got married, and I started my MBA program. What? So, so you have committed? Oh, wow. So, yeah. so you moved. And, and all of this because we're driven by this is where I'm going to. I yeah. want to build a company, and not just build a company. I want to make an impact, and yes. I know the best way to make an impact is to build a massively successful company yes. that will uh, that will create that impact. Give me the leverage and this and the, and, and the capacity to be, to make to make those impact. Yeah. For me to build this company, I want to go to MIT to meet minds like that yes. because and then they give me access and give me the understanding and innovation Absolutely. to be able to so, so you're able to map out that and say okay this, these are the steps I need to take absolutely that, that's essentially what I did and, and a lot of people you know of course uh, would say you know you're tired you're crazy you know why would you leave uh, a high paying comfortable job like this you know it's almost a recession proof job um, uh, and it, the thing is it's always a question of comparison, you know, and this even goes beyond maybe making job decisions. It's all, all about, you know, what is the target um, for you as, a, as an individual? Uh, so if what the target is, if you compare it to what you have, if what you have is nothing close to what you're moving towards, mm-hmm. then the logical thing to do is to uh, leave what you have mm-hmm. and move towards what you're dreaming about. Mm-hmm. But if for somebody else, if the pinnacle of success is getting that dream job, you know, making a very decent salary, Mm-hmm. Then it's, it's hard to see beyond that. Yeah. Then it doesn't make sense for you to leave that, which is fine. Like he's rightly said, in my case, the, the future that I had in mind was a lot was vast. It was a lot more vast than than what that job afforded me at that point in time. And the thing for me is, is that there are no regrets, you know. Um, and I have never for once, I literally have never for once looked back and, and had second thoughts. About the decisions that I've taken, mm. that oh, okay, maybe I should have stayed. It'll have been easier instead of all this stress of building a startup in Nigeria. That thought never crosses my mind. Even when it was things really get tough. tough, it never crosses. The only thought that probably crossed my mind, my, my mind that crossed my mind, would be okay, maybe I should have launched in South Africa, or maybe I should have launched in Botswana or in Ghana or in Kenya. Um, but it's not about maybe going back to uh, whatever I did in the past. Yeah. Uh, the life of the entrepreneur is is or, or not the entrepreneur per se, but the life of creating solutions um, because there are also entrepreneurs who lead innovations within established companies yes, yes. and it's also a legitimate career path yes uh, so the life of someone who's building is an exciting life that uh, I wouldn't trade for anything and why Max why logistics you have options you could yes. have gone into any other company you could have made because we know the end goal here is not just uh, you're so passionate about something a particular yeah. product yeah. and it's, you feel like you're the only one that should build it it was basically I want to make an impact and yeah. I want to use entrepreneurship to make this impact why Max? Why that's, that's, that's a great question uh, the first thing for me was was um, the scale of the impact you know that how big can this grow you know like they talk about startups essentially it's uh, it's really about the highest the, the upside <laughs> if the upside is very big then it's probably worth chasing mm-hmm. So for me, I need that. I, I've traveled a little bit across the continent as well. I've seen this problem, you know, it's, it's everywhere across Sub-Saharan Africa. So I need that, okay, this is something that uh, can go everywhere on the continent. So the scale was very attractive to me. The second thing was the multiple impact. So if this would help me create jobs. This would leverage technology. Um, this would accelerate economic activity. Mm-hmm. And this would also build critical infrastructure for the continent that will be a platform for delivering other services. 
So everything, maybe all the way from even healthcare or financial services that involves a physical delivery of something to someone, uh, realizing that we could literally build that infrastructure uh, and hopefully own it uh, was a massive, massive, massive attraction for me. So the scale of the impact the yeah. system, the, the, and, and, and the complexity of the problem attracted you as an engineer to say, yes, this is something I, I, yes. I would like to solve. Absolutely. And, and it work, so you worked, at, you, when you were at MIT, mm. you, you came back for an internship in yes. Africa yes. and you worked at um, Conga. Conga. Initially, Conga. You worked at, 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 at a consulting company and you found that really boring. Yep. And then you worked at Conga, which yes. was just starting then. Or, or at what stage was Conga? Conga was about one and a half to two years old already, okay. uh, but it was still a very much a startup. Uh, they had, you know, recently closed a massive funding round. And I think at that point in time, they had raised close to $80 million or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were growing aggressively. Uh, they were hiring left, right, and center. Uh, but there was also a lot of chaos. Of course, yeah. You know, which, is, which was yeah. what a startup is, right? Mm-hmm. So I got in and, um, uh, and I helped, you know, uh, you know Sim, Sim gave me a, an amazing opportunity to work in fulfillment and help figure out, you know, uh, logistics for them. Because at that point in time, Conga was going through a lot of challenges with logistics. I mean, every e-commerce company in Nigeria at that point in time was going through challenges with logistics. The existing logistics guys, uh, big logistics players in the market, didn't understand e-commerce. Even till today, many of them still don't really understand it very well. Because yet. there's never been that urgent um, buy it and get it delivered within the next few hours. Or days. You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't used to also delivering um, packages mm-hmm. and collecting cash on delivery. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Uh, I got in there, uh, amazing you know, time helping to design a new strategy uh, for fulfillment. Uh, but I was there for a short period. I moved on, but, but the team continued to execute really well. Um, and uh, my mentor there then as well, uh, Wally, who's, who's director of, of business development today, uh, an amazing person and leader as well. And together we did some amazing work while I was there. Uh, so I went back to MIT and you know, with that experience I had at Conga, working with Sim, Looking, you know, looking at his drive and you know his vision, uh, I realized that okay, there are Nigerians that are really building extraordinary things as well. And you have a unique insight into the problem of logistics yes. from an e-commerce perspective, exactly. And the massive scale that exactly you, 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 you could have, and yeah. the opportunities that lies ahead yes. because you can see that, that if e-commerce should be big in, on the oh, continent. Yeah. Logistics would be a massive layer that absolutely needs to be solved. Yes, an e-commerce company might not be able to solve that on their own. Absolutely, there needs to be a company that can be the layer of logistics exactly. to solve this problem that everybody is facing. Absolutely, because they are hyper focused on solving just that problem and yes. that problem only. Absolutely, absolutely. So, which is you know, which is very compelling. So, I went ahead uh, back to MIT and you know, armed with all that all, all that knowledge and information, got a team together. Uh, Chidu, um, my co-founder, came on board as well. So you started talking to people everywhere? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I started oh, pitching marks everywhere that I could, I could find. So you just find Nigerians or anyone? That Anybody, or not just Nigerians. So we had people from all over uh, join the team. Eventually, so you spoke to them and said, this is what I want to build. Can yes. you join me? Yes. Mm. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. I was a pretty good salesman at that, um, trying to get people to, to recognize and appreciate the scale of the problem. And also embrace it. Mm-hmm. And I was also um, then. I mean, Uber was raving massively. I was, you know, I would just quickly explain and say, "Oh, we're the Uber for deliveries in Africa," and they would instantly get it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was very exciting. Uh, so I, I got a team together, and then I mean, the rest, as I say, is history. We built our MVP. We pitched in a couple of competitions, won a couple of awards. 
Um, I mean, we won lots of different awards at Harvard, at MIT, pitch competitions. We got into textiles. What's your co-founder, Chinedu? Um, I know you have several co-founders then. Then, yes. What was Chinedu, the current co-founder now? Was he from MIT or from... Well, so Chinedu was also at MIT. MIT. Uh, he was, he was also was doing uh, his grad, uh, doing at MIT for graduate studies. At that point in time as well, he, was, he also was actively looking to get back to the continent okay. to, to you know build uh, massive businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also heavily entrepreneurial. Uh, he was looking at a couple of industries, looking at agriculture, mm-hmm. which we all know is still also a very big, big opportunity in, in Africa and Nigeria especially. He was also looking at e-commerce uh, for, for young kids and for babies. Um, and then I approached him and said, uh, you know, yeah, what's, what you're working on? You're trying to do e-commerce, right? But, you know, logistics is a big, is a beast. You're trying to do agriculture as well, right? Supply chain is also a beast in agriculture, you know. Supply chain and logistics is the Achilles heel of almost every, every business you can imagine in, in Africa. So why not let us just solve this problem and own the entire infrastructure and they can build whatever you want to build on top, on top of it? Yes. Right, let's run through from MIT. Okay. You built an MVP, you won a couple of awards, and then you got into textiles. Yes, that's correct. Um, and that was, was it something that you were expecting or something you just okay? Um, it just happened? It definitely was not random. We applied to tons of accelerators on F6S. You probably would know F6S. Yeah, 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 I know F6S. That's why you have all, almost all the yeah. awards, accelerators, and aggregated. you're just applying to a lot of... Pa, 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 just putting it in. You put all your pitches yes. together. We were, you know, fine-tuning the pitch. I was literally fine-tuning my pitch every day. Mm-hmm. What am I saying? Every hour. Mm-hmm. You know, to be more succinct, uh, to be more um, engaging, uh, to be more gripping, essentially. And then we started shooting, and then we got accepted into an accelerator in New York called Plug and Play. Uh, and you know we were very excited. You know they they they, they accepted us, um, and we were like, "Hey guys, we're heading to Silicon Valley." And then we thought about it, and we just thought that, "Ah, do you know what? This looks good, but this offer really, we think it's below what we've built." So we turned it down without having another offer. And it was crazy. So we continued applying to other accelerator programs. We applied to Texas, Chicago, mm-hmm. got to the final round. Out of 1,000 companies, we were one of the final 25 companies, and then they would take 10. So we traveled out to Chicago, met with the team. Many of them even had relationships with they, they, they knew Nigeria, mm-hmm. some of the, the guys on the uh, evaluation team. But ultimately, the decision was down to the MDs, and they said that you guys are a great team, but we don't know a lot about Nigeria, and we don't think we have what it takes to really help you. Yeah. Because, I mean, they are an accelerator, right? And if they felt that they couldn't accelerate you, there was no point. So that's how, you know, we didn't get Texas, Chicago, and we felt very disappointed. And then Texas, New York reached out and said, hey, guys. They reached out. Oh, they reached out. We didn't, we didn't reach out to them. They reached out to them. And said, it looks like maybe we might be able to help you guys, uh, but let's get to know you a little bit. So we started chatting with them. They knew us over in the next couple of, you know, weeks, about, about a month. And then we went out for a physical interview, uh, and then we got in. Wow. And we were very excited. So we moved back down to Nigeria, launched, and then moved back to New York uh, about so two you months later. So you moved back to Nigeria to launch the product? Yes. Put a team together in Nigeria? Yes. Um, what was the first thing you did in terms of getting people to start using this? Oh, that's another long story on itself. <laughs> we, did one, we did one of the very, one of, well, something very interesting. I actually do just get up every morning and just start driving around looking for businesses that would need us to deliver. 
Interesting. Oh, yeah, we were doing door to door sales. So you go to a company and say, okay, hey, it seems you have a delivery stuff. Yeah, can so we deliver you, to, you didn't leverage in your relationship with Conga? So we did. We had a letter of, letters of intent with Conga and the rest of them. Okay. Uh, but they weren't really ready to kick off yet with us. You know, but we had to start doing deliveries wherever we could find the deliveries, exactly. So we went to Computer Village and we would go there, like, go around the whole place the whole day, distributing flyers and talking to merchants there that we did deliveries. We didn't stop there. Then there was a new company that I had learned about called Payport. Okay. I reached out to the founder on LinkedIn. I bombarded him with messages and I said, okay, Ty, okay, let's meet, let's talk. We chatted a couple times. When I got to Nigeria, I actually knew as well, we went to see him a couple times. And we told him, hey, let's do your deliveries, let's do your deliveries. So I remember that day I and Chinedu went there to negotiate with him and with his team. Eventually they agreed to give us packages to deliver. And we agreed on a rate. And then but we didn't have motorcycles. So on our way out, I looked at I looked behind their building and I saw motorcycles there. So I asked, I said, what are those motorcycles for? He said, Oh, we bought some of those for our riders, but some of them we are not using right now. So I went back and said, Can you give us those motorcycles and we pay you back with your delivery fees? They said, Really? I said, Yeah. Said okay, they talked about it. They said okay, fine. Come and take the motorcycles at cost. Like they say, you you, you get extremely creative um, mm-hmm. when there is drive and there's not a lot of money. So you have to be doing the delivery yourself. With so we had riders. So we had riders. Then we couldn't ride yet. Okay. So we had three riders um, on our system, but we had to pay them, guarantee them a minimum income to start with us. It turns out actually that my, my first delivery was on a, in the Keja. It was in the Keja, and um, the customer was the way really. I mean. So the normal process we'll follow is we'll call them and say, hey, my name is Ty, I'm from Max, I have your package, can I come? Or uh, is now a good time to deliver? They'll say, yes, you know, please come ahead, please come around. Um, and then we got in the vehicle. Uh, so that I used a vehicle, I didn't use a motorcycle the first time. So I used the vehicle and I went there and uh, I said, I'm here with your package, you know, looking with my Max bandit shirt and everything. Uh, they just said, oh, please sit down there, I'm busy right now, please give me some minutes, you know. It's quite strange, but it was important as well to understand what our delivery riders go through. That, okay, this is the process. And that, you know, not many customers are going to be that nice. Yes. Or even that respectful. Yes. You know, so, but it was very interesting. I mean, the amount of work, you know, that you put in for every delivery, you call the customer sometimes, because even though they get notifications, uh, that's not enough guarantee sometimes. You'll have to call and say, okay, now I'm on my way. Especially because of cash on delivery, mm-hmm. please have your money ready. Or if you, are, if you, if you don't have cash, I'm coming and eat, uh, uh, a mobile point of sale system make sure you have your card ready um, and then I delivered and then of course eventually the customer paid and I said thank you for you know shopping with uh, the name of the company that I was delivering on their behalf uh, and you know if you need anything to, you know and then also give them flyers from Max if you need personal errands of course growth hacking mm-hmm. um, you can also let us know we're happy to deliver anything mm-hmm. for you but looking at the amount of effort that goes into one delivery it was huge then especially those LEDs and to figure out you know would, would anybody be able to deliver 30, 40 packages a day so you thought this that is what it takes this, to one the package the economics here might be, crazy, might be really really bad it could be yes but eventually I maybe figured it out uh, you learn these things fast you know so you, you're able to go through deliveries much faster mm-hmm. and I mean right now we literally place through deliveries I mean the other day during like the last Black Friday uh, I deliver. I think I went. I was out for just four hours, and I delivered seventeen packages in four hours. Wow! You know, you had everything together. No, uh, not, uh, not, not picking. I everything together. It's so a multi delivery. Okay. It was like a travel traveling salesman uh, problem. Just mm-hmm. figuring out stop points. But since then, I mean, um, it's been a, a, a massive learning curve. 
not just from a technology standpoint, but from an operation standpoint, and also from a market intelligence standpoint. Yeah. Understanding what the market really is like, how large it is, what segments and sectors exist, you know, which ones represent the best short-term growth opportunities, how to harvest them, how to lock in customers, what customers really consider to be value yeah. against what we thought was value. Yeah, of course, of course. But, yeah, wow. It's been amazing. So, so you, you, you launched in Nigeria, you did some deliveries, you now put a team together, you went back to New York yes. and finished the program. Yes. And I assume that you, you were running the program remotely, you and your co-founder were traveling back and forth. Yes, we did that. And what was the impact of that on the business when you were not around? We had mature people to lead operations they were actually consultants. They had their own consulting practice, but we hired them full time to work at the company for three months while we were at Techstars. Right. So there was adult supervision mm-hmm. while we were away at Techstars, and that was extremely important. And then when we came back, we took over control of the business and continued to build ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was that was very important. Um, and then after the program, of course, Techstars. We did TechCrunch in London as well. We got a lot of publicity. Uh, then we did, did a, a seed round. Battle, or what, which one? What, Startup Battlefield. Startup Battlefield. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Crunch. And there was quite a good, pub, I mean, I saw the publicity come yes. out and there were quite yeah. a number of people who were tweeting and talking about how exciting they're putting it this was, Yeah, yeah, that was, that was pretty important for us. Um, so, I mean, after that, you know, we were already on, uh, we had gotten a lot of momentum because of Textiles and Tech And did you use that momentum to raise money? Yes, we did, actually. Of course, that was extremely important. So, that after Textiles, you raised... Um, we raised uh, we did, uh, uh, a seed round, our official, for about a million dollars. Yeah. Uh, we did that in, um, we closed that in March. Wow. And then that gives enough. That, was, that should be an exciting milestone for oh, you. Oh, yes, well. it was extremely important because, um, I mean, building a startup, especially one that we are trying to do means that you may not necessarily make profit on day one mm-hmm. but you need to keep the lights on you also need to be able to hire top talent mm-hmm. and also pay your employees decently mm-hmm. in addition to giving them you know stock options and equity uh, and that, that was important to us you know so that that money uh, allowed us to be able to do some other things expand our team mm-hmm. uh, improve our product significantly mm-hmm. break into new verticals as well so when you raise the million dollars yeah um, does that validate that you're not as crazy as your parents might have thought you are quitting a very good job? <laughs> well, uh, of course. Raising money is, is always some kind of some validation for, for startups. Yeah. But of course, in our case, we need this surgery just the beginning. Yeah. Because, okay, you now you've raised money, now you have to build a real business. Now you have to scale. Now you have to grow. Now you have to prove that, you know, the faith that investors are putting you uh, it's really worth it. And of course, raising money comes with a new set of challenges. Yeah, of course. You know, uh, accountability is so critical. Yeah. Accountability from all sides, accountability to your partner, yes. accountability to your investors, employees, yeah. to your investors, to your shareholders, yes. and to your customers as well. Yeah, it, it comes with huge. I mean, uh, raising money is getting other, 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 other partners and other co owners of the company. Yes, exactly. And they are as much as, as much say in the company as, yes. as you as well. I want to quickly talk about uh, your process of raising money and then you talked about you had over a thousand list of investors yes. and you called over about 100 investors. So eventually we uh, would say we had conversations with maybe 300 to 400 of them. You have oh, yes. conversation with about 300 to 400 investors. Over a six month period, yes. Wow. Uh, because it, it's important, right? Uh, especially 
Yeah, this is something in Africa that a lot of U.S. investors don't, don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this amount of them would like you, but they would pass and say, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that market. Uh, I really like you guys, but I don't understand the market, and I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I may not be able to invest at this point in time, which is fine. So you keep moving, you keep iterating, you keep improving your pitch, you keep selling a lot stronger, a lot harder, a lot more effectively, while you're still building the business and having yeah. more results, attraction, mm-hmm. you know, to Go validate. Back, couple years in, yeah. So uh, that was so important. Uh, we went through a fairly scientific process to whittle down to the ultimate, to the eventual number of investors that actually put in money okay. uh, uh, in, the, in the round. So how many did you raise? How many so we had a total of um, about eight, eight investors thereabouts. And mostly from Africa? And uh, from two US. from Africa and the rest from the U.S. And two from Africa are the ones that you met, built relationship in Africa. So the two from Africa, I met one of them, I met through my by immersing myself also in the technology ecosystem in Nigeria. Okay. And I met with one of them at a conference and we started talking with this particular investor at a conference and then I followed up uh, and then we got, you know, we, we, we got talking more, you know, and they liked us and uh, said, okay, you guys look like you know what you're doing and it looks like this is also a strategic investment for us based on what, how we envision the future. And then, we, I mean, we, we like each other and then, you know, we brought them on board as, as investors as well. We had another investor from Gabon uh, who was recommended by another, uh, one of our U.S. investors. And then we got uh, our U.S. investors. One of them is European, mm-hmm. uh, German. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, two, two, two of them are from... Are institutional invest, do you have any institutional investors? Yes, yes, we do. We do so uh, who led the round? So the leader of the round is a venture called Lock Mountain Ventures. Okay. Uh, it's not, it's not a, a very popular VC. But it's one of the VCs that does quite a number of investments in the New York area. Uh, but Textiles Ventures was also part of the round okay. as well, you know, which a lot, a lot of people, of course, know. And then we had Blue Ring uh, Investments, which is based out of New York. We had Olive Tree Capital, pretty well known in the Middle East, give us money as well. And then we had the, uh, Lazaro um, Ventures, which is Michael Lazaro's uh, fund. Michael Lazaro is this, uh, one of the top angel investors in New York City. And a couple of other really interesting people as so well. So you had very good decent investors. Oh yes, we did. And then, and then this is because you had very good um, of the access and the stuff that you um, access that Texas gives you. Yeah, Texas was. So you highly recommend Texas. Oh, I would completely recommend Texas, New York, especially. But Texas generally has an amazing. They have amazing programs across their whole all, uh, all the cities that they are in. Uh, but the New York program is especially very strong. So for now, you're, 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 you came back home and you're building a company and, it's, and Max has been... Max came into the scene in a very strong way. Even mm-hmm. though there were other existing, it was a yes. strong one that have raised about a million dollars as well. Yes, before even you. more, some of them. Yeah, so like Ace has raised more money yeah. by then. So you're not coming to something that is new. Yeah. So how are you able to make that argument that when, when you're trying to raise money and it's okay, yeah, there's an existing one. They're solving the same problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. And they raise money as well. So this question is actually very interesting because a lot of investors will ask this. And one of the things we learned, you know, especially from mentors, is the fact that someone else is doing what they're trying to do means they're not that crazy and that there really is an opportunity there. Because many times where there are, really, where there are real opportunities, there's um, a lot of smart people looking at that space. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, the savvy investors also know that first movers do not necessarily turn out to be the successful ones. And examples are everywhere. Google was not the first search engine. Yahoo was there. Alta Vista was there. All of them were there. But Google came up with a much better search algorithm. So uh, you can look at um, Facebook as well. There was MySpace, there was High Five, and the rest of them. 
So what was important wasn't necessarily the idea. It was about the unique selling point of the idea and, and how we were different. different. Wow. So there was, the way we were going to execute was very different from how anybody else had approached at that point in time. And what were the key things? Some of the things was our, our, our insistence on leveraging a crowdsourced workforce okay. or an independent workforce. Which is, uh, which is counterintuitive in it this is. part of the world. Yes, it is. People want certainty in terms of their payments yes. and yes. they're not sure exactly. about the facility that they can provide. Plus people... I got a job. It's a job. Yes. Okay. It's a job you pay me. Exactly. Uh, and so why are you saying that I can only work based on? Yes. So it's just content. So are you able to build a, something that is against that normal? So that's a great trend. question. So in, in, in that led then now came down to another thing, which is not necessarily innovation, but came down to commitment. It's a it's a no brainer, but who who wants to do it? Who's going to build the cart? Who's going to manage the complexity of creating a new kind of workforce? Yes. And doing it directly? Yes. So it's the, a so the question of who, who's willing to come back from MIT and from Harvard and from America and be willing to go and talk to Okada men on the streets? Who's crazy enough to do Who's crazy that? enough to do that? And go to the, to the marketplace and go and hire guys and talk to them and learn how to ride a motorcycle and learn how to build an incentive system and how to enforce it yourself. Who's and it's not that? just building, talking to these Okada men and motorcyclists. It's not just like, come on, walk for me because anybody can do that. Anybody yeah. can put an advert and say, come yes. on, walk. I'll give you a car. I mean, I'll give you a motorcycle, you walk, and yeah. you get paid and you go home. Yeah. But you're saying that you need to go and convince them exactly. to believe in what you're doing yes. enough to take the risk exactly. to work with you. Yes. Knowing that they will only be paid if there's success. Exactly. So it's, 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 it's complex, but it's doable. It is achievable. So the question ultimately came down, which is also, you know, what, what I mean, we've seen with successful companies around the world is at the end of the day, you know, it's a combination of innovation and excellence, but also a commitment. Who has the staying power? Who has the drive? Who has the passion? Who is able to stay the course until this stuff actually breaks through? And that's, that's, I would say that, is, that would be one of the things that separates us from a lot of the, other people who are trying to do this. Mm. So, okay, so the people, other people I wanted to do that, they were building their own. Uh, they had technology, fleet. they had some the, nice technology as but well. The logistics fleets, they were building their own. They, are, they were building their own fleet or, okay. or using fleet. some other model that wasn't very um, so, so how, sustainable. How's the business now? Are you, you're not, are you profitable at the moment? Okay, so on a unit economics level, we are profitable. Okay. Uh, but we continue to invest because. A lot of our investment is also in, in technology and engineering. Mm-hmm. So if we were to just operate, so when you based on where we are, based on every order that every order, yes, money, because yes. that was a challenge initially. Initially, because we were paying fixed salaries when we first started, yes, that was yes. a challenge. Yes. But the moment we switched to the so uh, unit economics uh, to the commission pure commission based model, we, we fixed that. But yes. then, so you have gross at a gross. Oh yes, we do have gross profit. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. The, uh, the net. Let's Net, yes. Okay, and it's still time because yeah, because you have a lot of overheads that it, that will not match the number of orders. Yeah. But so the most important thing then is then the growth rate. Yes. And are you saying significant growth rate? So yes, we are seeing significant growth, uh, especially uh, as we started to pursue growth outside of just traditional e-commerce. Uh, I mean, logistics is a massive, massive market. And it's not a question of whether it's a profitable business. It's a question of how to harvest the opportunity mm-hmm. and the order in which to do it. Mm-hmm. So there's, lo- there's food logistics, there's agricultural logistics, there's uh, hyperlocal logistics for merchants, there's hyperlocal logistics for corporates, there's hyperlocal logistics for financial institutions. 
figuring out the order in which to grow. Because one of the things you learn, you know, uh, well, like as an MBA as an entrepreneur, is um, prioritization is very critical. Some things are transferable, but some other things are not transferable. Let me give an example. If you build something that works for human beings, can you adapt it for animals? Mm. Probably can. But if you build the product first for animals, and now say, okay, uh, this vitamin worked for dogs, now we want to adapt it for human beings, you're not going to sell that product. Because it's not transferable from animals to human beings. But you can transfer that product from human beings to animals. Is it because uh, human beings, we see them so Yes, there's a uh, psychological Psychological, yeah, yes. thing and they can protect, but animals yes. don't know what you're They don't know what they're doing, exactly. Yes. So thinking about, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a lame example, but uh, we can move our technology from certain segments. If you are successful in certain segments and verticals, mm-hmm. you can easily expand it to some additional verticals. Yeah. So basically, yeah. you can build a scalable system for a particular product that, can, that lends itself to, yes. there are some features that are applicable to other products. Yes. And so they are a bit generic in, yes. the, in, 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 in the way you can execute The fundamentals are generic, product. yes. For that product. So you, can, so you then look at which particular vertical can we build this product and for. And we for it. That, 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 that we can then replicate. Exactly. And, and which is what Uber is doing right now. I mean, now that they're, they're doing trucks. They're doing trucks. They're doing eats. I was about to ask you that. Is Uber a big, a big, um, a, a bit of a worry for you that they're going into? I, I wouldn't say worry. I would say, yes, it looks like all of us are going to meet somewhere at the end of the day. I mean, if you look at how technology is evolving right now, everybody is meeting at some, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, every, everyone is meeting, you know, <laughs> uh, eventually. Uh, same for us as well. We're all in logistics and transportation. The technology is sort of like fundamental. Mm-hmm. It's not very different from each other. Yeah. But um, when you're into B2B, it means that if you get a bigger client, if you get a particular client, that's a client that you can't get anymore. So that's an interesting thing. Uh, it's also changing. Technology is changing that because businesses are also realizing that instead of going into long-term contract agreements, there are platforms that allow them to also and other platforms are available that allow them to access services on demand. Okay. So, for example, if I want to get transportation for my guests and I'm, I'm a hotel in New York, I can partner with Uber, I can partner with Lyft at the same time. Okay. And the difference in, in who I use part-time will be based on the rate at that point so in time. So businesses are not um, faithful to one particular platform. Nobody is faithful to anybody right now unless <laughs> it, it serves them value. <laughs> wow, that's, that's interesting. I mean, we've covered a lot and I find it really, really interesting other question I want to ask is this. Where do you see this? Not just Max, but, okay. but technology changing the way we live, technology building the future, technology um, disrupting, not just disrupting, I mean, disrupting is a, is a very in, interesting word. But yeah. Technology creating efficiency in, in places that we have not seen before. So mm. in health, in, in bank, and yeah. uh, uh, logistics, that we're doing e-commerce, um, in government, yes. uh, and and things, and it's particularly in Africa, yeah. where there's been dysfunctional infrastructure and there's been dysfunctional government, technology now stepping in to create yeah. efficiency where none exists in the past. Yeah. Where do you see this going? Great question. Uh, and I would like to bring in a little historical perspective into into this sort of like build a quick baseline for for my my viewpoint is uh, if you look at how the great empires of the past how they conquered the world, especially like the, the British, uh, Great Britain, they build ships, and ships move on water. Even if you go all the way back and look at the, the Saxons and the, the sorry the, the Vikings, mm-hmm. they would build this nice looking 
ships. And the Vikings were able to conquer the island because they were able to move faster than any other person into the place. They built great ships that could move quickly on water. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing Great Britain did. They built ships. They built warships and they conquered the world. Essentially, what they did was they built the infrastructure that allowed them to take advantage, that, that gave them access, mm-hmm. using on the platform of water. Mm-hmm. When you look at America as well, um, uh, on America's economic development, um, the first the construction of the rail, rail lines by Vanderbilt mm-hmm. opened up trade from east to west. Mm-hmm. That was massive. And the building of the, the bridge that linked our east coast to west coast America as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, in the 60s, I think 50s, 60s, the, the massive, massive road construction projects in America, mm-hmm. uh, including Route 66, mm-hmm. opened up the whole country for business. Mm-hmm. That's when you had the likes of people like Ray, Ray Kroc mm-hmm. of McDonald's. Yes. Built be business across all those roads. Yes. So if you are traveling long distance, you'll always stop by McDonald's. Right? Yes. But if those roads were not built, mm-hmm. those businesses that sprung up across those roads wouldn't have, mm-hmm. have been built as well. What I see is, uh, for Africa, is is access. Mm. That's one of the biggest issues we've grappled with for the last two, three, four decades in Africa. Access to healthcare, access to finance, access to education, access to everything has been such a huge challenge. Because the way we thought we were going to do that before was to build physical infrastructure the way the West have done. Mm. Uh, last week I was at Harvard and I was having a chat with uh, Eric of Transworld Capital and I was asking him, I said, you know, is any African university ever going to be able to replicate what MIT and Harvard have built? Uh, he said, no. I said, yeah. I said, and, I said, and, I, and, I, and I spoke to him and I said, but the reality is that they won't have to because the way the future will be built is not the way Harvard and MIT were built. Yes. All of these massive, magnificent buildings and institutions will be made available on platforms. Yes. So the way... Africa is going to uh, leapfrog into first world status mm. is using technology. So you see technology as, our, as the advantage? Access, yes. Uh, because in the past, technology has always been something that can be kept. Yes. So uh, you're talking about the British ships, that's why yeah. you're able to conquer the most part of the world. Yeah. Because that technology is not accessible to everybody. To everybody. I mean, yes. you can look at it and try to create something similar, yeah. but it's, and it's very, very expensive. It anyway. is expensive to build, yes. But now technology is democratized. Oh, it is. And completely. it's affordable. It is affordable. Yeah. And, and, and people can just, and the Africans can leverage on that. And well. then, most importantly, we don't have anything legacy. Because mm. in, in, in the field of change management, one of the most difficult things that prevents change, uh, uh, things that can prevent change, uh, is the status quo. Yes. If there's a lot of investment in what we already have. Like in the UK, for example, in the US, the way I can log on to my bank account now and transfer Naira to you and you get it instantly for a very small charge, maybe 100 naira, or 60 naira, even for some banks. If you want to do that in the States, from a bank account to your bank account, instantly, a different bank, not the same bank, it takes a couple of days. In the States? Yeah, even in Germany. Nigeria's financial system, in terms of how money moves around, is a lot faster than Germany's. Wow. But the question is, Why? Because those guys have massive legacy systems. Which regulation has also... And there's no regulation as well. well. Exactly. Wow. But because we don't have... What has been their advantage is now becoming their their disadvantage. What is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Okay. Great question. It's... um, I did mention that one of the important things that we do is figuring out how to hire really great riders. Uh, That's still very tough. 
uh, we're, we're using technology to solve that as well, using machine learning, mm-hmm. sort of like create a correlation you know, between grade writers and you know some certain things that we look for, look out for uh, in the test. So bringing on great talent for our delivery work network, but also even for our own workforce as well, is always the biggest challenge. What is the what is your number one growth metric of successful deliveries paradigm? Which book are you reading at the moment? The on-demand economy. Wow, that's a good one. Which business is apart from your business? Which business is getting you excited at the moment? Okay, I, I like what the Okada books guys are doing. Okada books. Yeah. Okay, I think I've heard about them. They're like, I mean, I'm not sure if this is the right way to describe them, but they're like. Uh, it's almost like the Kindle app, essentially, but they are not just uh, making content accessible. Uh, they are also creating a very powerful revenue model for authors uh, in Africa. And it's, and it's online? So it's online, yeah. It's an app. Okay, so you can buy books on there. So people can buy and read. And wow. Yeah, wow. Right. And they're making it accessible to everyone. Everyone. Very exciting because of the impact that that can have on our, on our reading culture. Yes. Uh, as, you, as you've heard, this very uh, terrible comment that people make which has some truth to it that if you want to hide something from, from uh, Africans, you know, you put it in a book. Yeah. Hopefully these guys will change that narrative. Do, do you know those guys? Uh, no, I don't know them. Okay. Right, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll figure them out and I'll get them to this yeah. show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing guys. <laughs> well, cool. Um, which website can you not do without? So just to keep up with news and innovation, I mean, I'm always going to TechCrunch, right? Yeah. Just figuring out exactly what's going on there and what people are trying to do. Then also I visit MIT websites a lot. Some of the local news sites, but these days I feel like there's just a lot of gossip and low-quality news on them. Tyler, it's been exciting having you on the show. It's been great uh, chatting with you. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dolton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E S T A R T A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.